Welcome back, everybody. Welcome 2021. Here we are. Uh, we're we're getting ready to kick off on our third podcast of, of uh, you know of, of our series, and uh, we're excited to have everybody back. Uh, I'm Brian Fonseca. I'm director of the Jack D. Gordon Institute for Public Policy in FIU's Stephen J. Green School of International and Public Affairs. I'm joined by. Hey, hey, Brian, nice to see you in the new year. Uh, I'm Catherine DiPaolo Gould. I am a teaching professor in the Department of Politics and International Relations in SIPA, the, the Stephen J. Green School of International and Public Affairs. All right, well, great. Well, we're, we're excited to be, to be back and talk about, you know, a really important process in, in American government, uh, the process of presidential transition. And certainly this presidential transition has seemed to be uh, quite contentious. In fact, it was no surprise. Uh, many noticed that President Donald Trump was not at the inauguration of President Joe Biden on the 20th of January. And so it begs the question about sort of the history of presidential transitions, uh, which are really vital, by the way, uh, in terms of uh, continuity of government in, in American politics. And so, uh, Catherine, I wanted to ask you, before we get to our guests, I wanted to ask you a few questions about the history of presidential transitions. Certainly, there have been contentious polarizing eras in American political history. And this is not the first time a president has abandoned attending the inauguration of, of uh, his successor. Could, so can you sort of shed light on some of those experiences of the past? Sure. I mean, you know, we, this is, we sort of talk about it as unprecedented, but that's not exactly correct. Uh, you know, we haven't had, other than Richard Nixon, who resigned before being impeached and removed in 1974, and the swearing in of his vice president, Gerald Ford, you have to really go back to 1869 with another impeached president, Andrew Johnson, who, as you know, was, was Lincoln's vice president, uh, was actually a Democrat and um, a Southern, sort of a Southern Democrat, if you, if you will, from Tennessee, um, who was battling with the radical Republicans of the time, um, you know, really was almost removed from office, save one vote in the Senate. So, you know, this was a period of reconstruction post-Civil War, and it was not surprising, even, you know, though he had installed Grant as part of his administration, that he did not attend Grant's inauguration. But really the first to do this, Brian, was John Adams, who was our second president, who lost re-election and probably, I, I would say other than 2000, you know, and I'm a Floridian, but the, the 1800 election was probably the most exciting election uh, in US history. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was the vice president. He ran against incumbent, um, I mean, I'm sorry, yes, vice president, ran against the incumbent president, um, John Adams. And I could go on and on about how the house decided that election on 36 ballots, but, Suffice it to say, Jefferson had really created his Democratic Republican Party, really this um, small government, states' rights kind of party, in reaction to John Adams and the Federalist Party, which wanted a much stronger national government. I mean, these are issues you know we always talk about, but he ditched that inauguration, um, and his son, John Quincy Adams, who was uh, lost his reelection uh, to Andrew Jackson, also did not go to the inauguration. So. It seems that you know we, we, it doesn't happen often in U.S. history, but certainly as as we saw from the 2020 election and this period of time that we are living, when you have these deep partisan divisions um, and you know these incumbent presidents losing re-election, 
you know, they don't attend the inauguration. So it's been fascinating to watch for sure and to see how the transition now to a democratic administration and a president Biden and his administration is, is going to operate. Yeah, I think those are good points. And, and I'll tell you, I, you know, I think we, we perhaps don't uh, realize how important the gesture is, however. I mean, at the end of the day, the, you know, the gesture of, of the outgoing president uh, there with the incoming president is meant to, I think, um, you know, one, legitimize the incoming government, uh, two, uh, demonstrate some form of, you know, sort of unity um, as, as a government, both internal across the constituencies. It's a way of, you know, telling those that maybe supported the, the losing candidate that it's okay, we're still here, we're going to continue, uh, you know, to, you know, to, to govern. Uh, and it's also a message external, uh, you know, around the world about, you know, the continuity in, in American government. And so while it, it may seem, you know, somewhat ceremonial, uh, there is an important value to, to, you know, the outgoing president and the incoming president uh, sort of reconciling to move the country forward as a change in governance occurs. You know, I, I, I looked into to presidential transitions and again, the, the, the idea of, of um, I, was, I thought I would be asked this in the media, the, the idea that an outgoing president, you know, uh, doesn't attend an, an incoming president's inauguration. What does that mean? And it was interesting to kind of look at how the design, or at least over the years, how it's sort of been accepted almost ceremonially as a means of sending a message about sort of cohesion in American government, continuity of governance going forward, and that having the outgoing president attend the incoming president is a way of telling you know, the supporters of, of the losing candidate, it's okay, we're still together and we're gonna continue to govern in the interest of all. And, and so you know, not having President Trump there you know, was certainly, you know, uh, I think noticeable and didn't send that kind of message that we've seen in the past, even, you know, Gore um, and Clinton attending, you know, incoming Bush's presidency, despite the tensions between, you know, both of them in the 2000 election. But, but again, I, I just think, you know, uh, um, you know, it really important in terms of the symbolic uh, meaning that it, that it has and, and how I think people internalize um, you know, broader politics, but, but this, but I think the inauguration committee did a really good job at, um, you know, trying to put partisanship aside, um, you know, really building, you know, something that, you know, people could be excited about and be spirited with and, um, and feel good uh, about sort of, you know, the state of the country a week after, you know, the Capitol was on fire and, and, you know, people were losing their lives um, you know, as a result of the election. Well, it is fascinating. You know, I think in a democracy, ceremony and, and tradition are important. And as you said, you know, having that outgoing administration be there to welcome in the new administration, I think really shows the benefits of democracy, right? That we can have a transition and a peaceful transition of power. But this year was just so different for so many reasons. I, I think, in, I think in some way President Trump had some cover uh, with COVID. You know, I, I think if everybody was there uh, in a non-COVID world, um, having him absent would have been even stranger. Um, but also, as you mentioned, you know, the 
the riot at the Capitol, I mean, there was more National Guard troops there than those in the audience for the inauguration. And I think perhaps it was probably for the best that the Trump administration sort of left the, the area and we just begin anew. And I think, as you said, you know, with Senator Klobuchar and Senator Blunt as this bipartisan uh, committee on the on the transition, I think did a really great job. You know, there were no no balls and parties, and it was really all about you know the tradition and democracy. And and despite all the things that were speculated about in the in the, in the Trump administration, would he leave? He did, and he left peacefully. And by the end of the day on Wednesday on the twentieth, we had a new administration in place. Um, and while some are not happy, um, it, it happened peacefully. And I, I think that says a lot about our democracy that we continue on despite all of these uh, challenges and and differences, um, and and we go forward. Yeah, I think that's a great point. It's uh, it's indicative of the continuity of the American experiment that is going on for you know, a little over 200 years. And so um, absolutely welcoming this sort of new page. And, and again, notwithstanding sort of a, a more bipartisan uh, approach to the inauguration, I thought was fascinating and, and very much welcome. So that, that's to your point, having, you know, former President Bush there and uh, having Mike Pence there, I thought also was a really big statement um, and, and a statement that was, you know, very much needed. But uh, ultimately, I think you're absolutely right. The, the circumstances, around the inauguration, COVID, uh, the violence, um, all of that changed the texture of this inauguration and probably overshadowed um, you know, the absence of the outgoing president in a way that's probably a benefit to, you know, to, to, to the United States of America. But why don't we dig in on the, uh, on the process of presidential transition? And so uh, go ahead and invite uh, or introduce our, our special guest. Well, we are so excited today to have Libby Logan Wood, the Associate Manager for the Center for Presidential Transition with us. What an exciting week. Uh, the inauguration of our 46th president, uh, Joe Biden, took place. And the transition, I, I think most of us would say, uh, was a little different than what normally happens between Election Day and Inauguration Day. So without any further ado, uh, Libby, tell us more about what the Center for Presidential Transition does. Hi, thank you so much. And it's, it's great to be here. I'm really excited to talk about these issues um, and share more information about it. So I work at the Center for Presidential Transition, which is a team within the nonpartisan nonprofit called the Pu Partnership for Public Service, um, which has a mission to increase the effectiveness of our federal government. And so on the center, we're a small team of around 10 to 15 people uh, really working to increase public awareness and kind of best practices and legislative support for presidential transition. Um, and so this past year, we were able to work closely with the Trump administration, with career agency transition officials, and the Biden transition team to provide best practices, data, and custom resources to aid in a smooth and effective transfer of power. Um, and I also just want to pull out that we have an extensive network on the Center of Experts and Comprehensive Resource Library with historic documents dating back to the Reagan administration. 
Um, this is the fourth cycle that the center has been involved in presidential transition. And I also want to highlight that we were excited to launch a new resource this past year called Ready to Serve, which is a detailed, comprehensive set of resources for anyone who's looking to apply for a political appointment at any level. And it's kind of like one-stop shop for those resources, which doesn't exist elsewhere. So tell us, Livy, about the nuts and bolts of transition planning. I can imagine that going from one administration to the next, and especially when you have one political party that loses an election, um, or you know, even if they are just termed out and moving to a, a totally different political party that is then going to, to fill these positions, some of which you know, are high level political appointments, uh, a lot that aren't, uh, that are career civil servants, but I can imagine this is a huge task. So can you tell us about uh, under legislation, what is supposed to happen and really, you know, how does this transition go about from election day to inauguration day and beyond? Yeah, absolutely. And you're completely right. Uh, transition is, is a huge undertaking and that is the number one thing that we try to emphasize at the center. The 78 days, uh, on average between election day and inauguration is not enough time to effectively plan for everything that a new president and their team needs to take on. So that's a $4 trillion budget, vetting and hiring 4,000 political appointees, getting to know over 400 agencies across the federal government, and then figuring out how to implement policy priorities through those networks. So the number one thing we talk about on the center early on is how critical early planning is. And so a lot of that has to do with setting legislative requirements and structure to aid in presidential transition planning. The center has worked alongside Congress and government leaders to amend the Presidential Transition Act of 1963 which was originally enacted to provide for the orderly transfer of executive power in connection with the expiration of the term of office of a president and the inauguration of a new one. And so these amendments have institutionalized the process of presidential transition planning. Prior to 2000, there were no resources allocated to teams and candidates prior to the election. So there wasn't much incentive for candidates to begin the planning process if it took attention away from the campaign, if it took money away from the campaign. And so since 2000, there have been a lot of changes that have helped this along. So the, the most recent legislation authorizes the GSA administrator to consult with presidential candidates prior to the election and provide certain services to eligible candidates before the election, such as office space and technology. And we've seen how critical that's been to encourage early planning. It looked a little different this year, I will say, because of COVID and because of um, the dynamics that were at play. But the, I will say that the GSA did coordinate with the Biden transition team and fulfilled all of the requirements set out by legislation. I also just briefly want to touch on how this legislation instructs career federal employees to begin preparing for presidential transition 
regardless of what the election outcome ends up being, way in advance of the election. So GSA begins planning two years before the presidential election um, to create infrastructure within the federal workforce to welcome a new administration. Because as you mentioned, it is it, there's so much to do. And so I think all of these changes have vastly improved the activity in energy directed towards preparing for a potential transfer of power. Um, and it has depoliticized the process by putting career officials in charge of their agencies and in charge of coordinating with the transition team post-convention and post-election. That's excellent. Libby, let me ask a question about process that you know is not contingent on one particular political party or another, but a process that is really about continuity of government. Can you talk about some of the things that take place within transition that, it, that are designed to ensure that there's a continuity in government, not just in terms of personnel, but also in terms of policy, uh, policy implementation, domestic policy, foreign policy. Certainly transitions, I suspect, can take on you know, periods in which there's you know, uncertainty, but the transition process itself is really designed to shore that up. Can you talk a little bit about that continuity in governance? Yeah, absolutely. So agency career officials there, each agency names an agency transition director and they are tasked with preparing hundreds of pages of briefing materials to hand over to the transition team on the day after ascertainment. Um, and so that has to do with budget, that has to do with new priorities that have happened in the past four years. Um, things that should stay regardless of a political difference, things that have helped improve the effectiveness and management of government. Does that answer your question, Brian? Yeah, I think that, and I think that's a, a fascinating point. You know, I think most people don't realize how much actually goes into transition and not just a transition from, you know, outgoing administration political appointees to incoming administration political appointees. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the continuity of these bureaucracies, these massive bureaucracies like the State Department, the Defense Department, Treasury, Commerce, in which leadership changes uh, demand a level of information that ultimately maintain, you know, sort of how government is functioning in the day-to-day. -day. And so you talk about sort of the you know, the, the thousands of, of pages of reports across the various agencies are really designed to make sure that the incoming political appointees have the knowledge they need to maintain, you know, the day-to-day -day, or at least the oversight of the day-to-day -day activities that happen within these bureaucracies. Exactly. And I cannot overstate how complicated the federal government is when you look at just how it works what the hiring authorities are, uh, how to pass new procedures. Um, and I think trying to get up to speed through a series of, if it were a one-sided opportunity where it was just the transition team trying to get up to speed by asking questions and, and, and coming into agencies without that information, it would be a lot less effective. And so I think with these, that those briefing materials were part of something that happened in legislation in the past 20 years. And so with that has come more successful uh, presidential transitions. 
Libby, you talked about ascertainment. Would you be able to define what that means, uh, how it impacts transition planning, and, and maybe compare sort of, you know, you mentioned 2000s, kind of a pivotal year. We're in Florida, 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 is what came out of that 2000 election between Bush and Gore, where it took 36 days and the US Supreme Court ultimately to define uh, and decide who was gonna be the next president. How is all of this impacted? Yeah, so I think the theme of the 2020 election has to do with ascertainment. And I saw a lot of jokes around the internet saying, that people had never ever heard that word before and now it was like the central talking point every day between election day and when the it was finally ascertained i think around thanksgiving and so ascertainment comes from wording in the presidential transition act and it's pretty vague so i want to say the center anticipated that this may be an issue and really tried to prepare resources and um, information around this topic. And so ascertainment as it looks in the legislation says that the terms president-elect and vice president-elect as used in this act, so that means all the resources in the Presidential Transition Act are around the president-elect and the vice president-elect shall mean such persons as are the apparent successful candidates for office as ascertained by the GSA administrator. And so that idea of an apparent winner has not been challenged really since 2000. And that is where the confusion lies. How do you decide who an apparent winner is? And precedence has typically been set by networks. So um, how many networks called for a candidate. And that is literally how the 2008 election was ascertained and 2016. And so with that gray area, I think it opened up for a lot of disputes that ascertaining President Biden or President-elect Biden at the time was critical to our country's safety and success. And so while the Trump team was within their right to pursue legal challenges, we saw the election having a clear enough outcome to warrant ascertainment. And I wanna briefly say why ascertainment is so important and critical to the function of transition. So it's basically linked to all resources and federal access dedicated to transition. So all the legislation we talked about, all of the resources and structure available to a transition team really depends on the ascertainment of the election. And so there's a huge uh, suite of things that happen after ascertainment, but some of those critical ones that we've already discussed are being able to work with career staff and go into agencies and receive those briefing materials, um, to be able to access the funding from GSA, uh, which is actually millions of dollars post-election to hire up transition team staff and to have office space as needed to use federal equipment. And so that's why we kind of, we came to that decision. No, I, I think though, and I definitely want to talk about the 2000 and, and, and then sort of contrast it, compare it to, to what we're seeing and experiencing today. But I do want to underscore a point that you made. I think it's really important that I think most don't realize that you know, sort of the change in administration 
uh, doesn't boil down to you know who swaps in and out of the White House, but rather you know the thousands of people across these organizations that have to essentially you know have some type of of, of change, and and so that planning has to take place so far in advance, and the longer you delay that process of ascertainment or that process of acknowledging uh, who is going to take the seat, the longer that's delayed, the more disruptive to continuity of government that becomes. Is that right? Absolutely. I think trying to quantify the cost of delaying a transition is difficult. It was certainly achieved by the 9-11 Commission report from 2000 that essentially detailed the national security risks that were posed and could be linked all the way back to President George W. Bush only having 30 days to plan their transition and to get national security folks along with other personnel into the administration. And so it's a critical concern. Each day counts in that formal transition period. Libby, thank you for that. Um, I think that's, it's incredibly important for us and our audiences, you know, to kind of work through. Now, now you're right in the middle of transition now. And again, I, I know how busy and precious your time is. So we're grateful that you're spending time with us and, and our audience. And so I want to talk a little bit about, or at least hear your thoughts about the transition that we're experiencing now. Uh, certainly if, 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 uh, if you listen to the information environment, it's an unprecedented transition. Um, and in some cases it may be, in some cases it may not be, but, but I'd like to hear your reflections on what you're experiencing now in the 2020 transition. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, some of the things that are clearly apparent to me and to our team and, and hopefully to the rest of the country is that early planning really matters. And so, as I said, the Biden transition team named their uh, transition advisory board and their executive director and senior team early in June and they were preparing arduously for the task of what would come post-election, whether it would be ascertained immediately or not. And as a result, they've seen huge success in at least their personnel numbers. And so, for example, the Biden transition team and the Biden administration has had the most personnel to date announced by Inauguration Day, which is a huge feat if you think about what the late start looked like for them. And so the Biden administration announced 51 uh, positions that require Senate confirmation. That's compared to the second most was by President Obama with 42. And I think another thing to note that's incredibly impressive is having 233 White House staff named by Inauguration Day. The second most was also President Obama with 88. And so I think when you think about how the work gets done, how policy is implemented and created, and how we ensure that the federal government is moving and fulfilling the needs of the public, you think about people and how people are policy. And so personnel is such a critical function in transition planning is often overlooked. And it's clear that this was a priority for the Biden team this time around. I also wanna just 
reflect on the diversity of the cabinet and the diversity of the personnel that have been named, there's it's been clear that there have been clear priorities set forth by the Biden administration to try to reflect the rest of the country as far as racial and gender demographics. And so this is a cabinet with the most women announced and or nominated to date, as well as many, many firsts. And so of course, with Vice President Kamala Harris being the first woman, the first black woman and the first South Asian vice president. Additionally, a lot of other firsts are, are embodied in that cabinet. And so I think the intention and detail that probably started back in June or prior to that by the Biden team is really showing up thus far only a few days into Biden's administration. So I do want to quickly mention the significance and some of the comparisons and differences between the presidential election in 2000 and the one that just occurred in 2020. And so the center was looking closely at this issue of ascertainment. And on November 8th, right after the uh, networks, all the networks called the election for president-elect Biden, the, our advisory board released uh, a statement that basically pointed out that the outcome was clear due to the four state margin and that the partnership found that recounts tend to have a very small impact on electoral margins. And so actually the most significant shift during a recent recount in the last 20 years occurred in Florida's 2018 Senate election. And so once the recount was complete, we changed about 2,500 votes out of more than 8.1 million cast. And so the partnership determined that the likelihood of a change in the outcome of multiple recounts in different states is essentially infinitesimal. And so that's important to note when thinking about the 2000 election, where the electoral margin of victory was, came down to five electoral votes, whereas in 2020, it came down to 74. And so that would have required an 80,000 vote margin for Biden in Pennsylvania and a 22,000 vote margin in Georgia to be overturned for Trump to have won the election. And so I think the other thing I would note is that many people came out from 2000 and stated that these situations were not all that similar. Specifically the chief of staff for um, President Clinton and the chief of staff, John Podesta and chief of staff, Andy Card for George W. Bush, both mentioned that while they fought bitterly over the recount in 2000, that this one was not comparable. And so despite confusion around ascertainment and certifying the election, the sheer margin of votes and the unlikelihood that they would be overturned was something that should have been, or that could have been considered at that time. 
Libby Logan-Wood, Associate Manager, Center for Presidential Transition. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today to talk about the mechanics of presidential transition. There's no doubt you have an incredibly difficult task uh, with you and in, in your organization, especially today in, in sort of a deeply polarized environment, but really grateful that you and your team uh, are continue uh, you know, continue to charge towards the, you know, the continuity of government in the United States. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Brian and Catherine. It was an honor to be here. Well, thank you, Libby, for taking time out during this very busy week and, and for all that you and the great people at the Center for Presidential Transition do, uh, the great job you're doing. Uh, hope you get a vacation soon. <laughs> thank you. That's a wrap.